This week has raced by. I can't believe it's Friday. I'm so far behind. I got emails to do, appointments to make. I'll never dig out every hour that goes by. I get two hours further behind. It's Friday on Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Lisa Garvin and Layla Tassi. Laura Johnston's taking a well-deserved day off. It's Friday. You guys feeling good about Friday? Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, man. <laughs> got to get my Christmas cards done, though. Got to get yeah, the Christmas cards. Yeah, we're losing shopping days too, man. We got <laughs> we got to get those holiday gifts. Short season because Thanksgiving's so late. Well, I'll help mm-hmm. you along your way. Let's begin. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine cut off the extra $300 a week the federal government was providing to people receiving unemployment benefits, hoping to prompt the unemployed to return to work more quickly. Layla, did that tactic work? Ugh. This was super controversial when DeWine did this six months ago with the terrible justification that Ohio's economy was suffering because Ohioans weren't get, were not were getting paid to stay home and had no incentive to return to the workforce. So instead of dealing with the obvious problems that the minimum wage is too low or that parents lack child care options they can afford on low wages, he just thought, you know, he'd try to force them all back to work by slashing their unemployment benefit in the middle of this crisis. Welp. It seems that the the jobs and unemployment numbers now suggest that DeWine's calculus here was dead wrong. Taking away that added benefit did very little to encourage people to return to the low-paying jobs that he wanted them to work. Um, Reporter Sean McDonald found the number of filled jobs in Ohio grew 1.1% from June through October, and that lags behind the 1.7% growth in the national average during the same time. And Ohio's preliminary unemployment rate of 5.1% in October remains pretty much the same from the 5.2% rate in June, while the U.S. unemployment rate fell from 59 to 4.6%. And DeWine, when asked about this, couldn't provide any data that supports his initial theory here. You know, multiple studies have shown this to be true. The studies say that states that withdrew from enhanced unemployment insurance likely improved unemployment rates as a whole by less than half a percent. But meanwhile, the U.S. economy lost $2 billion in consumer spending on account of those cuts. In Ohio, that amounts to hundreds of millions of dollars lost. Yeah, that that was the story we did that I thought was important. What DeWine did by cutting this off was cut in a infusion of cash to people who were spending it. These are people that were in desperate straits. They needed the money to get food and to and to get their cars running and all the things that you do every day. So they would have spent that money. And it, it just seems so venal to take it away because it cost Ohioans nothing. The federal government was providing it. It was one of the benevolent things we did to help people get through. And, and it was this idea that, you know, all these people, they won't come back to the workforce to take these low-paying, crummy jobs. So let's squeeze them to do so. And it didn't work because we've seen this trend in America where people have just decided, <laughs> I'm not doing that. I am interested, though, that we have a, another story that we published yesterday that unemployment, new claims for unemployment hit an all-time low. And I'm sure some people will see some kind of discrepancy there, but there's not. The new claims involve people who are employed now. And as we all know, employers are bending over backwards not to lose people because they can't find anybody to replace them. So everybody's exactly. providing more benefits and they're doing pay raises and things to keep hold. So it's not 
th- this doesn't this isn't an opposition to the other. Uh, it just seems like Mike DeWine did something very venal with a spoken goal. It didn't work. So all he really did was harm the Ohio economy and harm a whole bunch of people. I'm glad we did the story. You know, Sean, he, 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 go ahead. Yeah, he did a great job with this. DeWine denies that his rationale for rejecting this money was to force people back to work. He says, you know, the policy simply wasn't needed anymore because the economy was reopening and people were permitted to return to work in a safe manner. That is some spin, if you ask me. I mean, that is just but restating. <laughs> but Sean included a quote from him at the time in which he did talk about yes. getting people back to yes. work. So yeah, you can't yeah, change. Exactly. what you said we all saw it he was on you know wine with wine, wine with, with the, the wine, wine. no that, it was <laughs> right. a very venal thing and it largely was republican governors you know going with the party mantra um you know john houston was a big believer in it too and it just harmed people i mean basically the governor of ohio harmed people needlessly and didn't attain his goal which i suspect will be a talking point next year when he faces re-election yeah. you're listening yeah what we need today. here is a voter uprising <laughs> we if everyone yeah. who was adversely affected by this policy votes against dewine he would reap what he sows here <laughs> And all the people that were angry about unemployment. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Jim Renacci has chosen a running mate in his Republican primary challenge to Ohio Governor Mike DeWine. Who is it and what experience does he have? And Lisa, we have entered the twilight zone. I was telling our colleagues earlier this morning that 10 years ago, having a Republican candidate for governor who, who, you know, former congressman would never pick somebody like this. It's just bizarre. Well, his his choice for running mate is Joe Knopp of Springboro. He's a motivational speaker, and he's a producer of Christian-themed movies. And as far as political experience, he has bupkis. He is a total newcomer, but that's kind of what Jim Renacci said he wanted. He said that, you know, he likes that Knopp is an outsider. He actually chose this guy after looking for four months and interviewing 60 possibles to be on his, on his ticket for governor. And he also said said that Knopp's relationship with Trump was a factor. Uh, One of the movies that Joe Knopp produced was called The Trump I Know, and it was a look at Donald Trump through the women in his life. That probably was quite interesting. Um, He's also a U.S. Air Force vet, and he a graduate of Wright State University. But yeah, it sounds like his his Trump creds is maybe what got him on the ticket with Renacci. Although Renacci says he did not know of that connection. <laughs> but, you know, the, the thing is, to say I want an outsider, that's fine. That always plays, right? Oh, we got all these career bureaucrats in, in government. We need outsiders. But that generally means somebody with business experience or management experience, somebody that has been involved in running systems of some sort. This guy has none of that. I mean, th- th- you're talking about having the guy who is a heartbeat away from being governor, who knows nothing about running anything. He's just made some sappy movies. Why on earth you would pick somebody like that to be the number two in the state? I mean, compare him to John Houston. John Houston, you know, was the secretary of state. He was in the legislature. He understands how things work. Whether you you like his politics or don't like his politics, you can't question that he's a bona fide expert on running systems and how state government works. This guy doesn't know any of it. What? Why on earth would you make him 
the guy who's a heartbeat away from governor. Because he's an ideologue? I mean, that, that seems to be, you know, what Republicans are running on these days. And it's interesting to me that he talked to 60 people, you know, so he had a far-flung search for his running mate, and he picked this dude. So, I mean, I can't help but think that it's the, it's the ideology that got him there. Yeah, but it's hugely irresponsible. It's just one of the most irresponsible things I can think of to have somebody who's number two in government who has no clue what he is doing. It boggles the mind. I'd love to see who the other 60 are. I mean, they're all worse. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> this is the best of the 60? Whoa, where did he get his candidates from? He ought to change his job search. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What is the reasoning of people who oppose a proposed bill to compel doctors to provide life-saving care to fetuses surviving abortions? Layla, this is separate from the big abortion news of this week, which is the very clear likelihood that the U.S. Supreme Court will throw out Roe v. Wade and the United States will be a patchwork of abortion laws with it being <sighs> legal in some states, not in many, including Ohio. This is something separate. What's going on here? Yes, this is Senate Bill 157. It's sponsored by Senator Terry Johnson. He's a Scioto County retired family doctor. It's really aimed at abortion clinics. That's what's at the heart of this. And basically, it requires doctors to provide life-saving care to fetuses that survive abortions. Failure to do that would be a first-degree felony. And Johnson has argued that a baby human born alive is an infant, not a fetus, and it deserves a chance at all the medical interventions that any baby would receive. But, you know, as usual, the architects of this thing didn't think through any of the consequences that this bill would have for parents experiencing the loss of an infant shortly after birth. I mean, for example, one doctor told the story of a patient who delivered her baby very prematurely, so early that that the baby's lungs were not fully developed or functional, and, and she was so small that a breathing tube wouldn't fit down her airway, even if her lungs were viable. And the mother of this baby was really comforted by being able to hold this baby until the baby died. And this bill would have required the baby to be whisked away for futile medical intervention and would have robbed that mother of being able to hold her dying infant. So they're just like those kinds of heartbreaking consequences here that weren't very well thought out. Is there a history of fetuses surviving abortions that are viable that are not getting tended to? I mean, I mean that's a really like good if, question. If they I mean, do, they'd like spend the, if, weeks and months in NICU, I would think, if they did survive. I mean, it, it, yeah. Well, for heaven's sake, I mean, yeah. Most of most abortions are so early on in the pregnancy that I can't imagine that there is any any you know chance that you're going to have a you know a fetus born with a heartbeat at that early you know at that early stage when it's when you know after an abortion attempt. I mean, I don't I I don't know what is know. The, the, the logic behind this. I'd be interested to know if there there is a history of that because you know if a fetus is viable after an abortion, then by all means, the doctors should be trying to to save it. I, it, I get the idea that the doctors are, be, are losing the ability to have a judgment here. I mean, if, if the fetus is clearly not viable and you need to have the psychological bond with the mom and this law deprives them of that, that's going to cause a lot of trauma. Um, it, it's interesting that many different ways this legislature is going at the abortion issue. 
You know, can I just throw something else in the fire here? There was one quote in the story that really stood out to me, and it was Representative Gary Click, the Sandusky County Republican who is a Baptist pastor, and he's talking about how sad this all makes him. And he said, we do care about people. We care about parents. We care about all people. But at what point do we care about that child? You know, that just made my blood boil because good question, man. You know, you, you tell me because my guess is you care about that child until it's born. And then where's all of the social policy that shows you care about that child as he or she is being raised in poverty or, you know, the conservative messaging becomes, you know, something different completely at that point. And that's how they absolve themselves from caring. And so that that just I when I saw that in print, I was just like, oh, my God, this is just, you know, really teed me up. But, you know, the, the problem is it's all going to be moot seven months from now. Come the end of June, the, the Roe v. Wade, very clearly, the Supreme Court made clear in its questioning, it's going away. <sighs> and Ohio is working on a trigger law so that the minute that ruling comes out, abortion will be illegal in Ohio. And what you're then going to see is abortion advocates helping people get to states where they can get it. And people in poverty will not be able to do it. And it's going to have you know differences on race it's just going to create a a nightmare but come i mean i i don't think it's it's irresponsible to predict that come the end of june that it's that we're not going to have legal abortion in ohio so this law Mm. wouldn't even be necessary you're listening to today in ohio what is the reasoning by some legislators who want to put more of an onus on cities to fund the pensions of police and firefighters Lisa, we'll, we'll get we'll talk about this, but one of these people made a quote that was absolutely ridiculous in support of this. What's the thinking here? And does this just another way for the legislature to stick it to big cities? Well, what they're trying to do with this bill is uh, fill a $6.5 billion funding gap and deficit in, in the pension fund. This would be the first change if it were passed since 1986. This is all about the Ohio Police and Firefighter Fund, which has 60,000 members, half of them retired. And uh, in Cleveland, that's about 2,730 seven people. It's the second largest, you know, group of, uh, people in there. Um, so what they want to do is increase the city and village share into this pension fund to 26.5%. That would be up from 19.5% for police and 24% for fire firefighters. Uh, the uh, executive director of the Ohio Police and Firefighter Fund, Mary Beth Foley, says that stable benefits are crucial for recruitment. And, you know, employees did face benefit cuts and increased contributions trying to fill this this large gap. Um Ohio Municipal League Executive Director Kent Scarrett, on the other hand, says this is going to cost cities like $200 million. And, you know, apparently the thinking is, is that, hey, you know, cities are flush with cash. You know, now's the time to, to ask for this bump in the pension fund. And Scarrett's saying, well, but this is mostly federal stimulus money. It's one-time payments that are going to go away. And also we're looking at a loss of RITA and commuter taxes, you know. So, yeah, it's kind of kind of a little bit specious reasoning, but I have to be careful here because I'm, you know, I'm a pension retiree from the state of Texas, so I have to be careful what I say. But anyway, yeah, kind of weird. But but but, but the, the reasoning that it hasn't changed since 1986 is totally bogus. 
It's like when they when a city goes to increase income taxes and they say, well, we haven't raised income taxes in 30 years. You're never supposed to raise the income tax. It's based on income. So the city's fortunes rise and fall with the incomes of residents. It's not like it's something that perpetually goes up. You get a percentage of the total income. It's just a it's a bogus argument. It's not like your school taxes where the dollar amount is limited by the House bill that caps the dollars and you do have to seek increases. To say we haven't increased the percentage cities pay since 1986 is such a non sequitur. It, it's a meaningless nonsense. There's a formula. Cities pay so much. State pays so much. The, the, the people in the pension system pay so much. And to say we want to alter the formula, fine, have that debate. But to tie it to a time, well, we haven't done this since 1986. There's a reason for that. That was the formula that everybody right. agreed to. And it's, one of, it's and it seems like it's venal to the cities because this will cost Cleveland and Columbus and Cincinnati and Toledo huge amounts of money. Right. And and like like they said, you know, they're eyeing, you know, one time federal stimulus dollars. So, you know, money that's going to go away in the, in the next couple of years. And the lo- as for the local government share as of 2020, it was over a half a billion dollars. It was 530. I'm sorry, not. Yeah. Half a billion, 530 million dollars. And then the employee share in 2020 was 312.6 million. So, and as as a pensioner, uh, we have not nothing has changed in our pension for 20 or 25 years. I mean, contributions haven't changed, benefits haven't changed. So, I see what you mean about a formula. I mean, Texas had a formula and they stuck to it and it's working for them. Well, that's what you're supposed to do. And and if you have mismanagement of the fund, you got to fix that. This is another sign of why ger- why gerrymandering is important, even though people aren't really paying attention to it. Having a supermajority of Republicans largely from rural areas means that those rural legislators are the overlords of the cities and the cities are not represented. This is going to be forced down the throat of the cities, which has happened over and over again in Ohio. And you keep waiting for when there'll be a break, when something will happen to finally break that pattern because it's grotesquely unfair. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Why are university hospitals in the Cleveland Clinic backing down on their mandates that staff be vaccinated by January 4th or lose their jobs? Lalo, we've talked repeatedly about how Metro Health and SUMA leapt to the fore and required vaccinations of their staffs to protect their patients. University hospitals in the Cleveland Clinic refused to do so. They finally did because of the federal mandate, but now they're not. I, as someone whose spouse is a healthcare worker at the Cleveland Clinic, this just really blows my mind. I mean, so so by way of background, you know, the Biden administration had issued a vaccine mandate in early November for healthcare workers at facilities that receive funding through the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, and that would have applied to about 1.7 million workers at 76,000 U.S. facilities. UH and Cleveland Clinic had announced that they would follow those rules. Metro Health and SUMA, as you said, Chris, had already said that the you know they they announced the policy changes independent of the government mandate. But then on Monday, 
A U.S. district judge in St. Louis granted a preliminary injunction to stop that rule from taking effect. The plaintiffs in the case argued that the CMS lacked authority to implement the requirement. And then the judge also questioned whether there's enough data about transmissibility and vaccination status. And he said he thought the federal order was probably arbitrary and capricious. Hmm. So basically, because the CMS deadlines don't apply while the injunction is in place, UH and the clinic won't independently require their employees to get vaccinated. I mean, Metro and, and SUMA are moving forward with their policy, but UH and the clinic are just issuing public statements pledging to put some other protocols in place, like random testing and stuff like that. So I just couldn't believe this. I couldn't believe this. And I, my, I, I, I broke this news to my husband yesterday after we had the story up, and he was his jaw just hit the floor. I mean, there's so much transmission. How can you, how can you put patients within close proximity of healthcare workers who may or may not be vaccinated? I mean, that's just insanity at this moment of the pandemic. And it's amazing well, actually, how fast that leads us. Go ahead. That's a, it, it leads us directly into our next conversation. What's the fifth wave of the coronavirus is raging in Ohio with levels we haven't seen in a while. So, Lisa, what are the latest numbers that are causing Layla's alarm that hospital systems would make this decision right now? Yeah. The, the numbers are jumping exponentially, unfortunately. And I, I just want to say that it was amazing how fast UH and the Cleveland Clinic you know, reverse their, I mean, as soon as that announcement, they reversed it. They didn't even take time to think about it. But anyway, uh, COVID is increasing statewide. Uh, We're seeing a lot of hospitalizations across the state, but most of them are in Northeast Ohio. So right here in Cuyahoga County, we have 690 cases per 100,000 population. That's from 601.8. Statewide, uh, it's over 601 people per 100,000, and that's up from 538.2. So, yeah, a huge jump in just one week following a week that had a big jump. And we had seven weeks of decline until these increases started happening again. The Ohio Hospital Association says 905 people are hospitalized as of yesterday, uh, 477 in Columbus and 483 of them are in Cincinnati. So, yeah, this is not looking good. And we're not even factoring in the Omicron variant here. Well, that's the thing. This is the post-Thanksgiving yeah, the, the spurt for the Delta variant. It, you know, it was big in Michigan. It was big in Northwest Ohio. It's circulated, and and coming with Christmas and the Omicron variant, we're in trouble. I mean, this is we're going to see some ugly stuff ahead. The Omicron looks really contagious. Although there was some good news out of Israel today. I mean, right now there's no data, right, on how mm-hmm. dangerous and deadly Omicron is or how contagious. It seems like it's much more contagious anecdotally, but out of Israel there was a guy who had it who was exposed to a whole lot of people that were triple vaccinated. They had the vaccinations and then the booster and none of them got it. So until we get the real hard data, we have to rely on the anecdote. The anecdote is that people who are triple vaccinated might be safe for Omicron, but we know lots of people in Ohio are not vaccinated. And when this thing gets here, it's going to be ugly and it's going to get here at the same time people are getting together for Christmas. Very frightening. It's, it's a staggering how big this fifth wave is. And it seems like mm-hmm. as soon as we turned the heat on and went indoors, it really it, just it burst. went up again and got together with family for holidays. And, you know, the, we've, we've got a whole lot of holidays, celebrations ahead. So, yeah, not very, it's kind of frightening. 
Yeah, it's it's a bad time. We'll have to see how Omicron goes once it's here. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What's the great news for people looking to fly off from Cleveland for their vacations? You know, Layla, we have very high landing fees for airlines, so it's surprising that we don't have the highest airfare. Yeah, I know. According to figures from the Bureau of Transportation Statistics, airfare out of Cleveland was 10th cheapest when compared to the nation's largest airports. The average airfare from Cleveland in the second quarter of this year was $271, and that's that's below the U.S. average of $300. According to the federal data, 62.5 million Americans flew in the second quarter of 2021. That's up from 11.5 million in the second quarter of 2020. I mean, obviously, I mean, that is a huge jump. Airfares increased about 10% during that period. But Cleveland remains a bargain with some of the cheapest fares in the in the U.S. Susan, Susan Glasser attributes that to the, the presence of several low-cost airlines like Spirit and Frontier and Allegiant. Uh, you know, Allegiant announced in October that it's leaving Cleveland for Akron Canton. But, you know, apparently... Back when Cleveland Hopkins was a hub for United Airlines, the airport had some of the highest fares in in the country. For example, in the second quarter of 2014, the year that United closed its hub, the average fare at Hopkins was $465. I mean, the national average at that time was $402. I mean, so, so, wow, wow. So, so affordable to fly out of Cleveland. I mean, some of the other cheap cities, Fort Lauderdale is number one, $208. Um, so, you know, we've got who else is on this list? Orlando, Las Vegas, Chicago, Miami, Tampa. Um, so interesting yeah, story f- by Susan. Florida airports have always been cheap. I lived down there and that was one of the benefits of being there. I mean, you put up with fire ants and, and terrible termites <laughs> and incredible heat, but you could get anywhere in the country cheap. I, I, I you know, we've talked before, Layla, about whether the airport is bad and all sorts of things. And you've said repeatedly, (laughs) what I care about is the price of the tickets. So you've got to be happy to hear this. Well, (laughs) that's true. I don't travel that much. I think I travel once every three years or something like that. But uh, yeah, and I felt that way about the airport until I went there recently and was blown (laughs) away by how crappy it is. How bad it is. I know. (laughs) Right, right. You finally came around. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How is Ohio Congressman Dave Joyce trying to make life easier for people convicted of marijuana offenses over the years? And how is he working with AOC to do that? Lisa, not the kind of partnership you normally expect to see in Washington, but Dave Joyce has become an advocate for people that support marijuana. He really has, and this is really nothing new for him, you know, because he was kind of behind the the push for medicinal marijuana. Um, Dave Joyce is a Republican from Bainbridge in Geauga County. He is sponsoring the HOPE Act with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the Democrat out of New York. It's, it's an acronym for Harnessing Opportunities by Pursuing Expungement. So what they want to do is provide $2 million a year in grant money from 2023 to 2032 to help states expunge the records of people with nonviolent cannabis convictions. And they, you know, they want to use this money. They want to get, you know, automated technology and legal clinics that can help you know, the states expunge these records. I think it's a great idea. It also includes a requirement that the U.S. Attorney General do studies on the costs of incarcerating these people and how these offenses impact their criminal records. And Joyce, he he was a former prosecutor. He was a former defense attorney. 
So he's had a lot of experience on how convictions for minor low-level marijuana effects has, uh, has affected employment, housing, and education for these defendants. He says there's a lot of collateral damage. It happens. He's also the co-chair of the Congressional Cannabis Caucus, and that group is looking into common sense policies and reforms for low-level cannabis uh, offenses. I think this is a great idea. It kind of goes along with our, you know, initiative here at Cleveland.com and the Plate Dealer, the right to be forgotten. I think it's great. What's interesting about Dave Joyce is he's he's almost a standout now in Washington because he's not knee jerk. Mm-hmm. You know, he's reasonable. He's he's a Republican who's not afraid to reach out to work with AOC. He's he, 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 he I mean, you don't have to agree with all of his politics, but at least he's a reasonable guy. Who, who looks at things with with a more practiced eye. I mean, he's a big supporter of Lake Erie, obviously, because he represents people who live there. But it's just interesting to see a former prosecutor who understands that the use of marijuana laws over the years penalize people too harshly, and he's trying to make it right. Uh, I salute him. I mean, I, I think you're right. And you're right. We're the right to be forgotten people. We're the <laughs> ones that remove people's names from stories to help them move on with their lives. This is a similar kind of thing to that. You're listening to Today in Ohio. I'm going to skip talking about Mark Wahlberg and his auto dealership and leave it there. Oh, I on. hope. <laughs> I love Mark. I had so many good Mark Wahlberg jokes. <laughs> did you did you did you really? Yeah, Go I was going to make a joke about <laughs> Well, I was going <laughs> to I was going to say that he uh, his acting career was just to pay the bills until he could realize his dream of owning an RV dealership. <laughs> That's a pretty good one. Yeah, I, the news is he's opening. I was up late one. thinking of that one. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wish he'd bring his movie business here. It's always fun to have movies here. Anyway, there's a story about him on Cleveland.com. You could read all about it. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Layla. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. Please do fill out our survey. A lot of you have. I appreciate it. We're grateful for the feedback. It's at cleveland.com slash today survey. T-O-D-A-Y-S-U-R-B-E-Y. I know some people have had trouble getting there, but if it's cleveland.com slash today survey, altogether, you'll get there. Thank you very much. We'll be back Monday for another discussion of the news. 